And Jacob dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Where our passage picks up this morning, our protagonist Jacob is on the run. I won't call him our hero just yet because at this point of his life, he's not especially heroic. With his mother's help, he's just tricked his older brother Esau for the second time, this time out of his father's blessing as well as his birthright. Now his mother Rebekah has caught wind that Esau is out for blood. He intends to murder Jacob as soon as their father dies. So Rebekah and Isaac scheme one last time and decide to send Jacob back to the old country to find a wife for himself amongst their extended family. And so the, Jacob, uh, the story of Jacob and Esau nearly becomes a repeat of the tragedy of Cain and Abel. And it would have been if God had not intervened. You see, the whole story of Genesis from the fall until the call of Abraham is a story of the ongoing breakdown of communion between heaven and earth on every level. On the macrocosmic level, and on the microcosmic level within us. It's a story of excommunication and exile from paradise, a disordering of the natural harmony and ordering of the cosmos as God arranged it, and of the ugliness and dissonance that reverberates down from that first act of rebellion to all of its hideous consequences. Slavery, exile, war, disaster, disease, destruction, and death, a state which the Bible calls the curse. Does that make sense? Well, it's the world we're living in. It's how the Bible explains why things are so messed up from top to bottom and why we're so messed up too. As St. Paul says in our epistle lesson from Romans 8, the whole world groans in travail until now longing to be released from its bondage to corruption. And we too, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly, longing for the redemption of our bodies. The world is longing for healing from the effects of the fall. So we have three points for today. First, the vision of health. Second, the fulfillment of health. And finally, the sacrament of health. So we begin with the vision of health. Last week, we spoke especially of one of the consequences of the fall. If you were here, you heard of this battle between the spirit and the flesh within us for supremacy, which is expressed in the Bible by this ongoing theme of sibling rivalries, including Jacob and Esau. St. Paul puts it in a way that I find to be very relatable when he says, I find it to be a law that whenever I pursue good, evil lies close at hand. It's true, isn't it? As soon as we set our New Year's resolutions, ah, evil is close at hand. So that's Jacob too. He with his mind is beginning to pursue the good, but as soon as he openly challenges Esau's dominance, he nearly dies for it. But at this point, Jacob's sense of the good that he's aiming for is, well, vague or nebulous at best. 
even though he doesn't personally know his grandfather's God, Yahweh, he does know that he wants that sweet eternal inheritance deal that was promised to him. That's about all that he has in a positive sense. But you could say that what's more real to him here, what's more motivating to Jacob in life and shaping his identity, is not a desire to know the true God, but a desire not to be like Esau, his meat-headed, carnally-minded older brother. And of course, naturally enough, not to be murdered by him either. Have you ever found yourself in a position like that, defining yourself by what you're not or don't want to be rather than what you are or do want to become? That was certainly me growing up and especially in my teenage years. I just want to be the opposite of whatever my parents are or the opposite of whatever those annoying people in high school were. It's really easy to do that, actually, because defining a positive ideal or goal is terrifying. It shows us how deficient we are. It shows us how far we have to go to meet that goal. You can save yourself a lot of work and a lot of painful self-reflection by just focusing on not being like something obviously bad. Well, I hear this one a lot, especially from from younger people. At least I'm not like Hitler. (laughs) Yeah? Congratulations. That's a high bar you set for yourself. They're going to have to throw wide the gates of paradise for you. He's not Hitler. Okay, that's a little mean, but it's true. Our political parties do this kind of thing all the time, too, don't they? Rather than do the hard work of coming up with a substantive vision for what our country could become, a vision that could unite us, they just say, vote for me because I'm the opposite of those crazy people on the other side of the aisle. And it's true for our health program, our health care system as well. We become increasingly afraid of defining what mental or physical health is for fear of offending the sick. So we just try to treat isolated symptoms when a patient complains of them. Or perhaps more cynically, healing people long-term isn't nearly as profitable as prescribing pills that treat surface-level symptoms but keep us perpetually sick and dependent. Although we now spend, as a nation, almost 20% of our national GDP on health care, more than twice as much as 40 years ago, it's clear we're only growing sicker, both in mind and in body. We're just like the woman with the flow of blood from the gospel. As it says, she spent all she had on physicians, but was no better, but rather grew worse. The more we try to run away from illness, the deeper the forces of death, disease, and disorder dig their claws in and hold on to us. And no amount of worldly wisdom or prescriptions can save us from them. And so God sends Jacob a dream that night. The text says, he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it, and the Lord stood above it. And then the Lord said to Jacob, well, he confirms his covenant and his promises with Jacob, that through him and his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, north, south, east, and west. So Jacob sees a ladder, or more, accurate, more accurately in the translation, a kind of ancient Near Eastern temple called a ziggurat. 
It's reuniting heaven and earth and allowing free communion between the two. It's actually what the Tower of Babel was meant to be, except that here it's not founded by human pride, but by the grace of Almighty God. This is the restoration of paradise, of God and humanity, the visible and the invisible, the eternal and the temporal, spirit and flesh, rightly ordered again, brought into harmony and perfection. Jacob's response to this dream tells me that what he saw was a thing of bone-chilling beauty. Have you ever been struck by something so beautiful that it shook you to your core, that it haunted you for weeks or years afterward? Back in the 12th century AD, Thomas Aquinas defined beauty as having three essential parts, integritas, consonantias, and claritas, or in the English, wholeness, harmony of parts to the whole, and radiance. Beautiful things that are that is, are complete. They're not lacking in anything obvious. They have this right proportion of the whole to its parts and of the parts to one another. And then this third quality, which is a little harder to define, it's something like a glow, a glow about them that at least stands out to our attention. When we behold something truly beautiful, it does something to us. It stops us in our tracks. It takes hold of us, and then it either draws us in like a tractor beam or else it makes us flee in terror. And then, if we are brave enough to press in, something altogether stranger happens. It pulls us together into wholeness. It unifies us. If you've ever listened to a beautifully composed piece of music, you'll know what I mean. Something like a a Bach symphony or a Gregorian chant or some beautiful anthem uh, sung by our choir. It actually composes us, doesn't it? It makes our souls for a time more tranquil and well-ordered. It has a healing effect on us. It begins to make us whole. So when I say that Jacob saw something beautiful, I mean that he saw something that had the potential to make him whole something that could heal him and reunite him, and reunite within him heaven and earth, spirit and flesh, back into harmonious order. But what Jacob sees is not just a something. It's a someone. And this brings us to our second point, the fulfillment of health. When Jesus calls Nathanael in the first chapter of the gospel according to John, he says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What did Jacob see? Who did Jacob see? He saw Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the God-Man, the one who unifies and reconciles in himself heaven and earth and all the divided nations of the world. And so when Jacob awakens, he cries out, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. We know 
that Jesus is the perfect image of God. As Hebrews says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Or as Colossians says, he's the image of the invisible God. All things were created through him and for him, and in him all things hold together. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things in heaven and on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. But Jesus is not just perfect God. He's also the perfect human. He alone shows us what it means to be truly human, what truly flourishing human health looks like. So when Jesus comes in his earthly ministry, it should be no surprise to us that he comes as the great physician and healer of humankind. Jesus actively radiates wholeness and health and well-being, so much so that when the sick take hold even of the hem of his garment, it's not him that becomes ill, but they who become well and whole. But there's one more effect that true beauty has upon us that I didn't mention before. Beauty moves us to imitation. Just like any artist who's ever been moved by a beautiful sunrise or a blooming garden and moved to portray it in an artwork of her own, so beauty causes us to want to imitate it. And so in response to his dream, Jacob takes the stone that he was resting his head upon and he sets it up. You can imagine it kind of like a pillar between heaven and earth, right? This column that's supporting or connecting the earth and the heavens. And then he pours oil on top of it. He anoints the stone. Evidently, Jacob has the artistic skill of a three-year-old, but somehow it's oddly appropriate. We see in Jacob's offering a crude image of the stone which the builders rejected, who became the head of the corner. That is, of the Christ, which means the anointed one, the oiled one. God gave Jacob a vision of Jesus Christ, because that's the only thing that could make Jacob whole, complete, that could heal him. For there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, as St. Peter says. And that takes us to our final point, the sacrament of health, holy unction. In all the primary sacraments of the church, God uses the most ordinary and natural things as vehicles for his supernatural grace. Ordinary water, for example, in baptism confers supernatural cleansing and rebirth. And in the Eucharist, Christ becomes food for our soul and body in his body and blood, the consecrated bread and wine. And so in each of these sacraments, the visible element points to what's happening invisibly. So what's the deal with oil? First and most obviously, oil is traditionally known to have healing properties, and we still use it for that purpose today. Think of ISAV or ointments or our favorite modern MLM pyramid scheme, essential oils. Uh, please don't ask me to anoint you with blessed essential oils. I have had that request before. 
And so naturally, we see the Good Samaritan in Jesus' parable pouring oil and wine on the injured man's wounds. And in Mark's gospel account, when Jesus sends the twelve out on mission, he has them heal the sick by anointing them with oil. But if you look elsewhere in Scripture for references to oil, you'll notice that it's connected to anointing your face to make you look cheerful. It's the opposite of how we look when we're mourning or sick or fasting, which is why Jesus tells his disciples to anoint their faces with oil when they fast so that only God will know about it. I imagine that it has something to do with the fact that oil reflects light. When your face is anointed, it literally shines. It glows. Have you ever heard the expression, my, you look positively radiant today? Or, you're just glowing. We typically judge somebody's health by the light in their faces and in their eyes, or the lack thereof. And, of course, oil was used as the primary fuel for light in those days, like with oil-burning lamps. The wise virgins in Jesus' parable brought oil with their lamps and so kept them lit through the night. But the foolish ones did not. And so, when their light ran out, they were left in darkness. Again, all of these things are important to consider because they're showing us outwardly and visibly what's taking place by the grace of God inwardly and spiritually when we anoint the sick with the sacrament of unction. You might also have noticed something peculiar about how the saints are portrayed in icons and images of the church, even in the stained glass windows that we have around us. They have this ring of light around their heads, halos, right? They're glowing with the reflected glory of God, of Christ, like living candles, anointed by the Holy Spirit and made like unto Christ. They shine like the stars. They become transfigured by gazing upon the vision of Christ's beauty, just like Moses was after speaking face to face with God on Mount Sinai. A famous Anglican author of the early 20th century wrote that the purpose of the sacrament of unction is to restore that harmony of order between soul and body which has been disturbed by evil, so that the soul may best fulfill its God-given vocation, whatever that might be. So when the reception of the sacrament does bring physical healing, it should be realized that such healing is the result of that restored balance of soul and body, involving a new life spiritually as well as physically. And when it's the preparation for death, we find in it the fortification or strengthening of soul and body for its final battle. So what does the sacrament do? It reintegrates us. It restores that right proportion or harmony with soul and body, and it makes us glow with the light of God. In short, it makes us spiritually beautiful. It's a sacrament not only of health, but of beauty. Now, there's a deep and intuitive connection between this sacrament of unction and a sacrament we talked about a few weeks before, which is repentance or confession. Although unction doesn't deal directly with sin, but rather with the disorder introduced by evil into the world, whether our own evil or not, we always see it preceded in the rites of the church by confession or repentance. 
It's because the sacrament is not a pill. It's not a magic wand that we can wave, and it's not snake oil. The way that it works, the way that it can heal us is by bringing us into closer contact with Christ, the Anointed One, which always means turning away from sin as well. As St. James says in his epistle, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders, for the priests of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So bodily healing, when it happens in the Gospels, and when it still happens through the ministry of the church today, it's meant to be taken as a visible sign of the invisible and inner healing of the soul that is taking place within us. But it's also meant to be the sign of the complete and permanent healing that we long for, that we as Christians expect at the end of the age in the resurrection of the body, when soul and body, the new heavens and the new earth, are perfectly reunited in the grace of God. Our world has perhaps never been more in need of the healing power of Christ or of the vision of his beauty, which alone can bring the healing, wholeness, and restoration that we long for. And Christ has never been more ready to give it. It never ceases to amaze me that Christ Jesus came into this world as a healer. That in his compassion and mercy for us, he cares not just about the problems of our souls, but of our bodies as well. All of that matters to him, and he desires to heal the broken. But he wants to do that now through his church, through people like us, flawed people, who, like Jacob, have been stricken by the awesome vision of his beauty, even just a glimpse of his healing presence. If only we might have the courage, like him, to offer up our own lives as a work of art in imitation of Christ, the Anointed One, our Savior and our Healer. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.